Well, uh, for those of you I don't know, my name is Rob Sweet, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I teach alongside Lloyd Shadrach most of the weeks, and I'm excited to be here because we're in a wonderful series, the Songs of Advent, and I want to catch you up on that and then dive into the, the one that I was hoping I would get when we divvied out the passages early on. I, I guess it's you know, part of the uh, benefits of my new role is I get to choose what passages I teach. Actually, that's not true. It doesn't work that way. But I did get this particular passage, Mary's Song, and I can't wait. And so I'm going to jump in before I spend more time on an introduction. Um, You know, it's interesting that we sing so much at Christmas. There's probably a lot of reasons to that. One of the reasons is that there's so many songs, so to speak, in the biblical narrative itself. And so this song, it's really poetry that we believe would have been sung. You know, this song is perhaps um, one of the best known, one of the predominant ones. I want to just give you a bit of historical context. You have to understand that when Jesus came on the earth, the Israel, uh, the nation of Israel had assumed at this point in time that God's promise may never happen. You know, there were those that were devout that were holding on to the promise of coming Messiah, but it had been 400 years since God had given any kind of official word through a prophet. 400 years of silence. And then out of nowhere, this happens. Out of nowhere, an angel comes to Mary in the text that, that the, the family read earlier about the, the Advent reading of the angel coming to Mary saying, you're going to have a baby. And the moment in time that that happened, Israel was sort of a footnote in history. They were scattered. They didn't have any national power. They didn't have a military. They didn't have a true political system. They didn't have a true government. They had a puppet king named Herod, you know, who was under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And by the way, Herod himself was not a a real follower of Yahweh in any way, shape, or form. He was a brutal man. He was a tyrant in and of himself. He shouldn't have rightfully been on that throne. And there was nothing going well for the nation of Israel. And then the angel comes. And then Mary, of course, hears the word from the angel. She goes off to find Elizabeth, her cousin, who was experiencing her own miraculous pregnancy. And then Elizabeth confirms everything that the angel had told Mary. And it's at that moment that Mary sings. And I think what's happening is all the emotion that kind of Mary had been carrying since the angel came just bursts out of her and erupts. And she begins to praise God. And, And it is an incredible song. It's prophetic. It's beautiful. It's also stark. Like it hits hard, this song does. It's not about um, chestnuts and uh, snowmen. It's not your typical Christmas carol. And by the way, that might be one of the reasons why we don't hear that many contemporary versions of this song. What we just heard this morning was a beautiful exception. Uh, The song itself is interesting in that it's taken on a name historically over time. It's called the Magnificat. That comes from the the Latin. Uh, The first word in the Latin translation of the song was was that, and it means magnify. In our English translation here, it's the word exalt, and it's the third word of the song. My soul exalts the Lord, but over time, people have grabbed onto that, and they call this the Magnificat. It's theologically rich. It's thematically stark. I already kind of mentioned this a little bit. It's actually about social revolution. We don't think about that with our Christmas songs. You know, we don't sing about that very much, but it's right here in the text. It is in three parts. I'm going to cover it 46 to 49. Mary's talking about the theme of social revolution in her own story. Then verses 50 to 53, she's talking about this same theme in the story of all creation. 
everybody. And then 54 and 55, the same theme carried over into the nation of Israel. So that's going to be our outline of the text. Let's start with 46 to 49. Mary's going to talk about her own story. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. And then she's going to go on in verse 48 to explain the reason that she's praising God. For, which could also be translated because, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Now, here's the theme of the whole text. God's turning the world upside down. That's what I mean by social revolution. I'm, I'm purposely choosing a, a word there that kind of ruffles some feathers. What do you mean social revolution? God is gonna turn the whole world upside down. And how is he doing it? By taking the low people in society and lifting them up. That's what Mary is saying. And that's the theme of the whole text. The outcast, the marginalized, the humble are gonna become the ones who are exalted. Meanwhile, the powerful, the wealthy, the resourced are going to become the ones that are brought low. And I hope you do feel some tension around that. Like, wait a minute, I thought Christmas was, was just a spiritual message. What's all this stuff she's talking about here? I hope you feel the weight of that text. And we're going to apply it to our own lives and what that means for us today. And I hope you'll come to a more full understanding of what really Christmas is all about. It's, it's not just... Uh, the, the, you know, marshmallows and the lovely dovey stuff. There, there's some beauty in the traditions that we have as a culture. There's no question about it. But what we're proclaiming when we say joy to the world, the, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Things are changing because King Jesus is remaking creation. And that's great news for those that are on the bottom. It's very threatening news for those that are on the top. And that's what Mary is digging into. Let's talk about how this theme of um, kind of reversal or revolution plays out in Mary's own life. From a cultural standpoint, she was on the very bottom. She was a Jew. And that was not something you really wanted to be in that culture. Okay, She was in Galilee. So even as a Jew, there, there were the haves and the have-nots. And the, the Jewish people that actually had influence and power, they lived in the south in Judea around Jerusalem. The northerners were kind of considered like, you know, the, the ones out in the sticks. So think about some of the southern stereotypes that we deal with a little bit. You know, and many of you moved to Nashville from other parts of the country. I don't know what your preconceived ideas of the South were like. And, and let's be honest, like Nashville's not the deep South, you know, in many ways. But, but you know, you... you you go out a little bit into the country, and, and yeah, yeah, you're in the deep south. And I grew up in the south, and I, I've been stereotyped in some ways. We, we lived in a small town in South Georgia one time when I was little, and I had a deep southern accent, which, of course, I lost as soon as I could when we moved to a place further in the north because I was made fun of for it. In the same way, the Galileans were made fun of for their accent. They were. Do you remember that time when, you know, uh, Peter's denying Jesus, and the girl's like, even your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. You see, Galileans were sort of set aside. And so Mary's Jewish. She's from Galilee. Not only that, she's from Nazareth. There was literally a saying of the day that said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, it was sort of the armpit of Galilee. It's Nazareth, guys. Like, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That was the saying of the day. She's a Jew in Galilee, living in Nazareth. Not only that, she's poor. That is worse than just economic disadvantage, 
It's enough to be economically disadvantaged, but the opinion or the stereotype of the society at the time was, if you were poor, especially the level of poverty that Mary is, you must not be favored by God. You must be on the out with God. Meanwhile, the wealthy people were the ones that God blessed. Doesn't that sort of logically kind of make sense? Not biblical, but it kind of makes sense. And that was the attitude of the day. So she's poor. Not only that, I just want to name this one because it's real, especially in this culture, in that culture. She was a woman. In that culture, that meant she had basically no rights. In that culture, that meant that she was treated as property. A woman's identity in that culture was attached was, was, was who she's attached to, which man she's attached to. So as a daughter, she's attached to a patriarch and she gets her identity from her father. As a wife, she's attached to her husband. Now he's the patriarch. She gets her identity from her husband. Mary was neither. She was betrothed. She had one foot out of her father's family, one foot in her husband's, but not fully there. She was in this in-between stage. She was in that society, the lowest of the lowest of the low. Now, let's talk about what God did. He placed himself inside of her. The second person of the Trinity, the most powerful one, he put inside of the least powerful one. The, the little girl with no voice in her culture, he chose her to be the voice of the gospel. The very first human being to proclaim the good news is right here from the mouth of Mary in Luke chapter one. Do you see what God's doing? He's turning things upside down. He loves to do this all throughout scripture. Think about David. David was the overlooked little shepherd at the bottom of the family that God said, no, 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 no. That one's gonna be the king. Like all throughout scripture, you see this pattern and now he's doing it with, with Mary. Don't miss the insight, the depth, the theological gravity that Mary's words has. In that culture, she would not have been given education. She would not have been given the opportunities to study the scriptures in the same way that her brothers would have. But she was sharp. Like she was a little, she was a theologian, a teenage theologian. I mean, if you read this text, uh, we get to hear from her directly through this text. In fact, you know, it, Luke could have just said, and by the way, Mary was so joyful that she sang a song and then moved on. Instead, we get to hear her words directly. What that means is Mary is one of the authors of the scripture. Now, she didn't write a whole book, but she wrote a psalm embedded in the gospel of Luke. That makes her one of the authors of the scripture. The Spirit spoke through her in the same way the Spirit spoke through any of the other authors of the Scripture, and we get her exact words, her direct words on the page so that the Holy Spirit is still speaking through Mary's words, speaking through the text, the Word of God to us. Even today, we're learning from them. By the way, I just want to say this because I know some people in the room come from different Christian backgrounds, different Christian traditions. Mary was just in need of a savior as you and I. You know, she was not a perfect person by any means. And we should never elevate a human being to someone that we would pray to. We pray to God alone through our intercessor, Jesus Christ. That's the pattern in scripture. And, 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 and so 
the, the point here is not that Mary was this perfect, elevated woman that we should pray to. No, the point is she was lowly. The point is she was needy. The point is she was in the bottom of society. And yet God did something remarkable in her and through her. And she's glorifying who? God, my soul exalts the Lord, is what she's saying. Because he has done this remarkable thing. All right. Let's now look at how Mary takes this theme of reversal, of, of things being turned upside down, and she's going to now apply it to not just her own story, but to society at large, to, to really the whole creation. Look at the, the middle part, verses 50 to 53. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, this text should kind of smack you in the face a little bit because we're, we usually would think, what's the message of Christmas? Oh, it's, um, it's salvation for all who believe. Yes, it is. Um, what's the message of Christmas? It's peace to the whole world. Yes, it is. But do you see the double-edged sword in Mary's words? Like, this should hit us in the face a little bit. Mary's essentially saying, look, this is good news for the poor and not so good news to the rich. And we struggle with this because we, you know, a lot of us, We've got some resources, and so we're wanting to like just spiritualize everything. And, and, and of course, of course, Jesus' coming was for a spiritual purpose. Of course it was. That's the core of the gospel. But it has reverberations throughout society, economically, socially, governmentally. The kingdom that is coming is not just a spiritual kingdom. It's a literal kingdom. And so Mary is looking ahead prophetically, and she's essentially saying he has brought down rulers. By, by the way, I forgot to mention this. Why does she use the past tense? It hasn't happened yet. Okay, this is what the, the ancient prophets in the Old Testament did too. They used the past tense to talk about prophecies often. It's called the prophetic perfect tense. And they would use it because they were essentially saying, this hasn't happened yet, but I'm going to talk about it like it has, because it's so certain that you can talk about it in the past tense. So don't miss the fact none of this stuff's happened when Mary's talking about brought down rulers, exalting those who are humble, filling the hungry with good things. She's, but she's talking about it in the past tense. She's talking about the future coming kingdom that's on its way through the king that's in her womb. Right, that's what Mary is talking about here. So she's really bringing forward themes from the Old Testament about the revolution that's on its way through Jesus Christ. And she's applying it now. Uh, and she's saying, yes, and it is here. It's not that different than when Jesus starts teaching. What does he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he starts saying things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, Jesus is reversing. Jesus is turning some things upside down, just like Mary is talking about in this text. So this text is, in a way, among other texts, a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. All the things we've been waiting for to happen are now beginning to happen with the arrival of Jesus. And so we can look forward to a new kingdom that is to come, where he will fill up the hungry and lift up the lowly with his almighty hand. 
What a day that will be. Now, Jesus obviously picks up this theme. He talks all about the reversal, all about how things that are now low will be lifted up, things that are now high will be made low, and all the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. I already quoted some of those to you. I I just encourage you to open your eyes when you read Jesus and, and be thinking about how he addressed the poor, how he addressed the marginalized of society, how he addressed those that were on the outside looking in, and by contrast, how he addressed those that were on the inside looking out those that thought they had it all together, those that didn't know they had a need. Jesus' words are very different to those two audiences. It makes me wonder, what kind of conversations did Mary and Jesus have when Jesus was growing up and, you know, with Mary? You know, you know hanging around the kitchen as she's you know, cooking stuff and she's, she's talking about, you know, here, here's what you've come to do. To fill up the hungry, to lift up the lowly, comes right from her song. Luke chapter one is so interesting to me. Well, Mary has one more verse in her song. She realizes that at the center of the story is the nation of Israel. She sees her identity as an Israelite. And what God is doing in her is not just for her. It's not even just for the world. It's particularly related to the nation of Israel. Before Israel was a nation, it was a family. Before Israel was a family, it was an old man and an old woman who couldn't have kids trusting in the promise of God that God would miraculously allow Sarah to conceive. And so Mary, I think, is thinking about that story, her own miraculous pregnancy, Elizabeth conceiving in in her own age, in her old age, excuse me. None of this is lost on her, so the last part of her song goes all the way back to the origin story of her nation. Listen to verse 54 and 55. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So remember, uh, when, when Mary would have proclaimed this song, Israel was, was nothing, right? They were just a footnote in society. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have their own government, no military, no freedom, no identity, just a small group of people clinging to an ancient promise. Overlooked, lowly. And Mary is saying, our seemingly insignificant, no consequence nation is being lifted up just as God promised to be the center of his redemptive plan on the earth. That's what God promised Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. I'm gonna make you a great nation and through you, all the nations or all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And Mary's going all the way back to the origin story of Israel and she's saying it's happening. The lowly, The lowly nation of Israel is being lifted up to the place that God intended for it to be, a blessing to all the nations on the earth. How's that all happening? Through Jesus. Me, Mary says, a lowly teenage Jewish girl from Nazareth is being lifted up where everybody will count me blessed. Why is that? Because of Jesus Christ. All the rulers that are up high and arrogant and think they're so strong and powerful, they're gonna be brought low. And all the people that are needy and hungry are gonna be filled and lifted up. How's that gonna happen? through Jesus Christ. It all centers on him. That's Mary's song. Now, I want to dig a little deeper into the theology that underlies it because that's where we're going to find our application. So in that day, this was either the best news you'd ever heard or the worst news. 
okay, Mary's, Mary's news was, Mary's message. If you were on the outside looking in, the poor, the sick, the lepers, the outcast, those without power, the, the known sinners who were thought to be beyond redemption, those without any kind of cultural influence, if you were on the outside looking in, the idea of God turning society on its head was fantastic. But if you were on the inside looking out, so this would be those with resources, the cultural influencers, the ones who had power and access, the wealthy, the ones that were viewed as the religious elite, the ones that were viewed as the, they were in with God because of all their works and all their righteous, righteousness, so to speak. Anyone at the top of that society, this was anything but good news. In fact, it was very threatening. And so no surprise, when Jesus starts preaching about the kingdom of God to come and he's teaching the Beatitudes and he's teaching all these other upside down kingdom principles that you find all throughout his message, there were two polar opposite responses. I mean, literally, like the poor and the lowly and the outcast wanted to be with him. They wanted to listen more. Tell us more about this coming kingdom. In fact, uh, um, as the story plays out, most of them would say, I'm gonna follow this kind of savior that cares about me, the lowly. But the one that says that the righteousness is not all about how you look on the outside, but righteousness is actually about what you have on the inside, not what you have on the outside. I'm gonna follow this kind of teacher. And meanwhile, the powerful, the wealthy, those that considered themselves very religious and good, they dismissed him at first. Second, they tried to silence him. And third, they crushed him. Because they didn't want a savior because they didn't think they needed a savior. They were doing just fine on their own, or so they thought. You see, the news about an upside-down kingdom is very threatening to those that are on the top. So it's no surprise that Jesus was persecuted in this way. Now Mary, back to our song here, Mary knew exactly where she was in this paradigm. She was at the bottom. She was the lowest of the low. She was tremendously needy. She was materially needy, socially needy, spiritually needy, at least from the perspective of those that were thought themselves righteous. You know, there, there, there was an, an ancient Hebrew prayer they would pray at that day where they would say, God, thank you for not making me like one of these. And it would point to a woman. Thank you for not making me like one of these. It would point to a tax collector. Thank you for making me not one of like, like one of these. You, you, you feel the, the, the pride in that. You see, Mary knew her own need and in her great need, she received her Savior with joy. That's the heart of her song. That's what she gets about Christmas that you and I miss about Christmas. Mary was willing to say, I need a Savior and he's come. Praise God. That's the big idea of Christmas, that in our own need, in our own poverty, a Savior has come. That's not only the core idea of Christmas, that's the core idea of the gospel. 
in our own need, in our brokenness, in our lowliness, in our depravity, in our spiritual bankruptcy, a Savior has come. You can only receive him if you understand your need for him. I think maybe one of our biggest problems today for us is that we live in a society and culture that resists neediness at every front. It's like nobody likes to be needy. You know, we, we like to be independent. We like to be okay. No one likes to be needy. We, we all know people that are needy. <laughs> you ever had this conversation? It's like, oh, man, he's a nice guy, but he's really needy. You know, we all know people that are needy, and we don't want to be needy. Uh, I, I think this could be some kind of barrier for us. I think from a biblical perspective, actually, the opposite is true, and that it's not the needy ones that are at risk. It's those who don't realize their own neediness that are at risk. This is why I think Jesus has such hard words to the Pharisees, right? You guys remember the, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin? The context of that is Jesus is talking to a group of Pharisees that are grumbling about him hanging out with the needy folks, the sinners. Like, Jesus, why are you hanging out with those people? And Jesus tells them these stories. And the whole message of the Pharisees is, you can come into the party too, but the cost of admission is to admit your own need for a savior. Self-sufficiency, men and women, is what keeps you from grace. I think this is a much bigger problem for us than we think. Look again at verse 51. Look at verse 51. We'll put it on the screen if we're able to do that. That would be helpful. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now, hold on a minute. It, it was like, you know, it's about rulers. It's about rich people. Oh, now she's meddling right here. She's like, no, no, no. He scatters those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now, remember the heart is your core self. Okay, so this is a description of deep-seated independence and self-sufficiency. This is the heart of an individual that is not humble. This is the heart of an individual that is self-sufficient. So throughout the song, as Mary is contrasting, she's contrasting two kinds of people. And, and often she's saying the rich, the poor, the hungry, the filled. But here she's saying, no, 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 there's something in your heart. It's as if she's saying, when you dig into a person's heart, i.e. their core self, here's what you'll find. You're either going to find pride or humility. You're either going to find self-sufficiency or neediness. You're either going to find room for God or no room for God. The condition of the heart makes all the difference. About 30 years later, that little baby that's now in her tummy will grow up to say these words, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, in preparation for this message, I read a sermon by Tim Keller from about 20 years ago, and I dug back through the archives, and he gave an interesting analogy that helped me and may, may help you as well. He said, Mary's proclamation is that the grace of God is blowing in like a great wind. Okay, think, think about a great wind blowing on the ocean, 
All right, now think about if you're a ship and this great wind starts blowing in. He says, if you know how to align yourself to the wind, like if you're a good sailor and you know, okay, we gotta align this way and put this sail up and take that sail down, et cetera. Or if you wanna think about it spiritually, if you meet the wind of grace with humility in your heart, then you will receive mercy and be blown into the arms of God. But if you fight the wind, the wind of grace that is blowing in through Jesus Christ, if you dig into your own self-sufficiency and your own independence, if you resist the wind that is blowing by doubling down on your wealth or doubling down on your independence or doubling down on your own righteousness or your own sense of goodness, if you fail to recognize your need in the ways that you are insufficient and you are in need of being lifted up, you will be knocked over by the same wind. It's about the condition of your heart. Let's make this as practical as we can. I want to go back to the song I quoted earlier. Joy to the, the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What does it look like to receive your king? The next line helps. Let every heart prepare him room. What would it look like for you to prepare room in your heart? This advent for Jesus. Maybe the first time you've ever done that. Maybe the 58th time or the 76th time you've done that. What would it look like for you to prepare him room? I want to apply this briefly to two audiences. First is the audience that's in the room. Some of you that, that feel like you are on the outside looking in, at least from a cultural standpoint. You know, there's something about you that you feel like is unworthy to be accepted. Um, you're, you're marginalized somehow. Maybe you're struggling. You may be ill. You may be financially struggling, barely making it. Um, maybe you just feel unfilled and you feel unexalted. In other words, you're needy. And you're willing to own that label this morning. If that describes you, then let your song be like Mary's song. It's filled with hope. It's filled with joy. Put your full hope in the Son of God who is coming to make all things new. The coming reign of King Jesus, in other words, is going to turn the world upside down. And if you're on the bottom now, that's good news for you in the kingdom to come. Do you see that? You're just like Mary. But you might be saying, listen, I have put my faith in Jesus. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm still down where I was. I'm still on the outside looking in. I still feel unlovable. I still feel ugly. I still feel unaccepted. I still am barely making it materially, physically, economically, socially, whatever you would put in the blank. I'm still needy. And you really are just like Mary. Because when she wrote these words, her circumstances had not changed. She was still a poor Jewish teenage girl from Nazareth. In fact, at the moment she spoke these words, her condition was worse than it had ever been before because she was now pregnant and not married. And that meant bad things for her. Yet... She put her faith in the promise of a coming king. Future tense faith, future tense hope. 
you see. You see, the Advent season traditionally is not just looking back on the first coming of Jesus. Advent means arrival. It's traditionally being understood to look back and look forward. We're standing in the middle. In a sense, Mary looking forward, we're also looking forward. So for those of you that are willing to admit your own need, your heart has room to receive the hope of salvation now in part and fully received then in the kingdom to come. That's what it looks like for you to prepare him room. Hold the tension between the already and the not yet. Keep your humble heart saying, Jesus, I need you as you look forward to the fullness of salvation that's gonna come, your eternal life in Jesus Christ, where literally things will be made right. Not in some spiritual floating on a cloud kind of place that we tend to think of heaven. No, a new earth, a redeemed and restored earth with King Jesus sitting on the throne and all things made right. All right, other audience. I I know that there's a bunch of us in the room that just, if we're honest, like in terms of society and culture, we're not on the outside looking in, we're on the inside looking out. Now, no one likes to say they're wealthy, okay? And we can all look at the guy that has more money than us. I mean, I guess, except for um, Jeff Bezos, (laughs) you know, there's, we're always, you know, he's really powerful, he's really wealthy, not me, not me, not me. But if we're honest, many of us are much less needy and much more self-sufficient than Mary was. And can we just be honest about that, all right? We have resources. Most of us, we have security. We have material comfort. Many of you in the room have some kind of cultural influence. We all have some, some, some rights, some political rights. And by the way, none of those are bad things. Don't hear me say that. But what about those of us that are not on the bottom? Maybe some of us are even on the top. What does it look like for us to prepare him room? It starts with understanding that the core of the gospel message is that Jesus humbled himself for us. He became lowly. Like he did what you and I don't want to do, you see? He took the downward trajectory. He emptied himself, Philippians 2, and and, and became a servant for us. For us, he was at the very top and he became on the very bottom. And here we find him in Luke 1, inside the womb of a poor Jewish girl and Jesus would go even lower than that. He would go all the way down to being naked on a cross. Hung there for you and me because of our pride, because of our self-sufficiency, because of our independence. He was willing to become dependent, needy, weak from a human standpoint as a substitute for us. That's the gospel. And then you put your faith in Jesus Christ because you recognize your own pride, your own need, your own spiritual poverty, your own ways that you resist God's leadership over you. You recognize that. You put your faith in Jesus who paid the penalty for those attitudes and paid the penalty for those sins, all the sins that you've done in your life. And then you begin to follow him. And following Jesus means, at least in part, following him on the pathway of descent. And this is the part that we don't, it's part of discipleship that we don't like to really talk about. It means actually believing what Jesus said, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. How do we actually do that? I gotta go really fast. If you have power and position and wealth, the point of this is not necessarily that you rid yourself of all of those things. Although for some it is. 
Like, do you remember that rich young ruler coming to Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sell all you have and follow me, Jesus says. He walked away sad because he wouldn't do it. Jesus didn't say that to everybody. Why that guy? I think because Jesus could look in his heart and he realized that his power and his wealth was a barrier to him owning his neediness and crying out for salvation. And because of that barrier, Jesus says, rid yourself of the barrier, then follow me. It's just like, if you have nothing, you've got to depend on me. You see, some of you need to empty yourselves of some stuff, like material stuff, literal stuff, because it's, it's making you feel so self-sufficient that it's hard for you to cry out in need. But it doesn't always mean that. It doesn't always mean that. There are some profound examples in Scripture of powerful and wealthy people who were humble. Think about David. Think about Moses. Think about Joseph. What did those men and and, and other women, too, in Scripture who were wealthy and powerful but were humble, what did they have in common? Here's what they had in common. They stewarded their Neediness. They stewarded their high positions in society with great humility. And that's what you have to do. That means humbling your heart. You have to humble your heart. You were put in a place of power and wealth as a servant. And so you also are like Mary. And you should claim that. You should own it. Mary says, I'm a bond slave. Did you catch that word? It means servant. And that's a beautiful thing to be. And if you have a problem accepting that you are a servant of God, then you have a heart problem. You were put here as a servant. Following Jesus means using your resources the same way Jesus used his, in self-giving love for the joy of other people. Mary's song is a picture of Jesus invading the space of a humble heart. That's what it looks like to prepare him room. He has to invade the space of a humble heart. And I can't think of a better application than what we're about to do with this global offering. So let me just set this up for a minute and we're gonna pass around the baskets. Here's the thing. Giving money will not save your soul. And y'all know this, I hope. I hope you know this. There is one thing and one thing alone that will save your soul. You know what it is? Admitting your spiritual poverty that you need forgiveness, that you need grace, that you need a savior who came and lived the life you couldn't live and died the death that you deserved and was raised to walk in newness of life so you could follow him. When you admit that and cry out to King Jesus to rescue your soul in your spiritual poverty, you are saved, men and women. And then you start following Jesus on this path of giving your life away, right? And part of that for us is materially God has used this church in profound ways around the globe for 20 years now. And let me just tell you this. He has given some of you money so that you can give it away. He's given us as a body financial resources so we could give millions of dollars over 20 years to these 12 partners that just have a heart to serve God but don't have the money to do it. Some of us have the money to do it but not the heart to do it. This morning is an opportunity for you to meld the two, your resources and your heart. This morning is an opportunity for us to make a little bit of room in 2018 Advent for Jesus, to prepare him room. This morning is an opportunity for us just once again to worship God through saying, it's not mine. I'm dependent upon my God for provision. Could you give with that spirit this morning? If you do, 
you'll get the same thing Mary got, a soul that exalts the Lord. Joy as Jesus fills the empty space that is left behind. There's a number of ways we can give. We're going to pass the baskets. If you have a check or cash that you want to give to this global offering this morning, you can just put that right in the basket. If you want to give online, you can do that during this same time, this same space. Go to our website, fellowshipbiblechurch.org, and you can find out how to give online. It's very simple. We also have a text to give. You can do that this morning, even right now, in a minute. Text any dollar amount, the word global, and any dollar amount to that phone, that, uh, phone number. And by the way, all this information is right here for you too in your worship program. Uh, in a minute, we're gonna watch a video together. About halfway through that video, the ushers are gonna come down and start passing the offering baskets. This is not the only day you can give. You know, our global offering is gonna go through the end of the year. You can give online that way. But why not today? This is the one day that we as a body are gonna say, let's take four minutes to present our offerings to God. Let's humble our hearts and give. Father, it is with joy that we offer gifts to you that we know you're going to use far better than we can use them. The other men and women in this room, that they, they just have resources just sitting there, and you know they're there for the future, they're there for a rainy day. Would you allow them to trust you to take those things and put them in your hands, and then you will fill them up however you choose to fill them up? The, the, the vacancy that is left by these gifts of resources will not stay vacant for long. It will be filled with joy it will be filled with energy and excitement of being part of your mission on the earth. It will be filled with gladness and hope as the gospel is going around, around the world, and you will take care of us materially too. You will. And so, God, I just pray as we give, may it come from the right place. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This time of year is always special at Fellowship Bible Church. Every Christmas, we decide to have less under our own trees so we can give more to the world. But what does that really mean? What kind of tangible difference can a small offering make? Less under your tree. Less under your tree. Less under your tree means more peace building, training for church and community leaders, and access to quality education to more children for my country. Training more men and women for ministry in the Arab world. More time for me to build relationships with the almost 90% unreached people in our country. Less under your tree means teaching more pastors, teaching more teachers, provision of Bibles, giving more education. Less under the Christmas tree means more teachers for Moscow Theological Seminary students who have scholarship and many, many blessings for the churches in Russia. Over the years, the Global Christmas Offering has given over $7 million to our global partners and enabled countless stories of life change and gospel transformation around the world. Your gift matters. Your generosity makes a difference. So thank you for giving. My prayer for Fellowship Bible Church is that God would bless each one of you that has given in the past and that he would provide for you to continue to bless 
many around the world for his glory. I pray for fellowship that it would be true to the scriptures, true to the gospel, that it would uh, live to help fulfill that, that vision that Christ had, that mission, the great commission of our Lord to reach the world for him. My prayer for the Fellowship Bible Church, to be in unity with Christ and with each other, to love each other and our Savior Jesus Christ, to be faithful to Him, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ till the end of the earth. May the Lord transform all of us in His image, to be His salt, His light, to be in His hands. May the Lord's will be done in our life. We pray for you, our dear brothers and sisters. My prayer for Fellowship Bible Church is a prayer for unity and growth and grace and generosity. That's how I got to know you over the last years. My prayer for the church of Fellowship Bible is that God will protect and continue to keep our partnerships so that we still impact lives. Less under your tree. Less under your tree. Less under your Christmas tree. Means more for the world. Means more for the world. Less under your tree. Means more for the world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much and God bless you. joy it is to give and be a part of that. I want to read to you the names of the countries where our gifts are going as the gospel is proclaimed in Peru, in Slovenia, in Croatia, in Russia, in Jordan, in Sudan, in Greece, in Uganda, and in Germany. Stand to your feet. I want to send you out with this benediction. Here's what happens when God invades a heart that has prepared him room. Like Mary, that person begins to exalt the Lord. That's the best possible thing that could ever happen to you, that you would begin to exalt the Lord because that's what you were made for. You weren't made for comfort. You weren't made for wealth. You weren't made for power. You were made to steward those things, yes, but underneath all of that, you were made to glorify God. You were made for your own magnificat. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. May this be our song this Christmas as well. Go in peace. <laughs>